0: All right, so remember, so far in John, the big sections we've gone through, we've gone through uh, the first chapter, um, going up to verse 29, is about the building of the tabernacle, Christ is the tabernacle, Then we have Christ as the sacrifice being emphasized in the chapter 1, verses 29 to 51, he is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so the, we're reminded of the idea of a bronze altar in the tabernacle where sacrifice is given for sin. And then remember, there's the bronze basin where there is water for cleansing. And so John 2 and 3 emphasize this cleansing. We had the water into wine out of the, the cleansing pots, the, the cleansing pots for ceremonially cleansing bread on it, a shoe bread, the bread of the presence. And... Chapter four through seven emphasize that, and this idea of, of nourishing, and so this discourse on the Sabbath, and the healing that occur, are uh, an emphasis on the idea of the nurturing, the nourishing, the healing, the this giving of strength to man, uh, that that Christ does as he, the symbol, the typology, the the foreshadow, of the. Uh, shoe bread and the, the chalices with wine points us to this nourishing work of Christ. So when we get into chapter 5, last time, last week, we, we looked at verses 1 through 18. And that we then looked in the evening at the application of the Sabbath. And what we're reminded of is the fact that the Sabbath is principally for worshiping God and the work of the assembly of the saints, right? So the work associated with the necessary um, components of the functioning of the church, of the assembly, um, are is the appropriate work of the Sabbath, and the worship itself is the heart of that. And then when we're not in the assembly or doing things necessary for the assembly or in the public worship, we're supposed to be engaged in private worship as household worship or you secretly by yourself worshiping God. And besides that, necessary works to kind of keep going for the day. So you have food prep and things like that. And then we talked about works of mercy. And so healing fits inside of that, right? So there's the worship itself, things associated with the assembly, works of necessity, the ordinary daily things that need to be done to function. And there's the works of mercy. And the goal is to put aside our ordinary works and recreation so that we can focus the day on eating, feasting the word of God. Okay, so we're taking in God. So it's a, this, that's why the Sabbath is in the center of this discussion in chapters, uh, what do they say, 4 through 7? I know, yeah, 4 through 7. So this discussion here in the middle of that section, chapters 4 through 7, uh, about the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is the feast day of the soul. It is the day when you are able to take in the word and to nourish your soul more intensely than on other days. And so this is how we think about the the bread of the presence. So now Christ is with us in the new covenant era in the preaching of the word. So the preaching of the word is the presence of Christ with us. Uh, The word is Christ. Christ is the word. We participate in Christ as we believe His Word, and so we realize that this is the nourishing and presence of Christ. And so, you think about that: the bread of the presence, the shoe bread. Uh, remember, shoe is not just an old-fashioned way of saying show. Shoe is distinctively bread of the presence, the shoe bread, the bread of the presence. Um, so, the idea it's symbolic of the presence of God with us, and with the Lord's Supper, it's obvious how that typology comes over as well. So, um, so this idea that there's the presence of Christ with us. So um, in Roman Catholicism, the way that they talk about the presence of Christ with you is how? It's in the transformation of bread and wine into the physical body and blood of Jesus. But the Reformed faith has always taught that the way that Christ is with us is by the word. And then also that word abides in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, who is the vicar of Christ, is sent to represent Christ. He's sent by Christ. um, And he causes the indwelling. The indwelling is the enlightening, the illuminating work, the regenerative work, the upholding work. When the, the presence of God in us is him causing us to believe. God is everywhere all the time. God is everywhere all the time. So the idea is not that he's absent there in the sense of he ceases to be omnipresent for those who are unbelieving, but rather there's a way in which there's a manifestation of God in a believer that there is not a manifestation of God in an unbeliever. What is the difference? Belief. Faith. And it's a gift of God. So the indwelling is the work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to have, to possess God by possessing the Word. And so... This uh, text on the Sabbath then becomes a, an emphasis on the, one of the ordinances of God for us to intensify that manifestation of God in us, which is the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath, which in, obviously when Christ is dealing with this, this is the Old Covenant Sabbath, right? And so what we have is this idea that the Sabbath is a feast day to take in more of Christ. Now, on page, well, sorry, you don't have the handout. So, whereas, uh, in the first section, verses 1 through 15, in, in the first section, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 5, there's the healing of the paralytic, and the healing of the paralytic is the third sign that's given. Remember, there's the first sign, which was the turning water into wine at Cana, and again, that was a sign for cleansing. The second sign was a sign of healing of the royal official's son in Cana. But what we're dealing with here is these healings that are occurring have to do with emphasizing the nurture, the care, the the healing work, the nurturing work of the word where Christ takes and he improves, builds, strengthens. And so we had that in Cana. Now this third sign is taking a man who has been long infirm. remember he's been there for 38 years, and he's at this Bethesda pool in the temple in Jerusalem, and the healing that occurs there. So, uh, what we find is in the section verses 9 through 13, the day is the Sabbath, and the Jews see this man who's been healed carrying his bed, he has been told to pick up his bed and to carry it by Jesus after Jesus healed him. The response of this guy is, hey, I, I'm carrying this because the guy who made me well told me to take up my bed and walk. And the response of these people is not to say, whoa, wait, who is this guy that that healed you? And to try to figure out what's going on with that. But rather to say, who is this guy that told you take up your bed and walk? So again, their emphasis is on prosecuting him, persecuting him, and uh, the one who was healed didn't know who Jesus was, and so he wasn't able to tell them. So remember, the law forbids work on the Sabbath, except as the work relates to worship, the assembly of the saints, works of necessity, works of mercy. Now, the Jews added the human tradition, making it so that there were not these necessity and mercy exceptions. And if you study uh, some of this stuff that has been written from Talmudic Judaism, you find, for example, all these rules of the elders that have to do with how to avoid work. So rather than just saying, on the Sabbath you can carry a lamp because it's necessary for you to be able to move, you go, you can only carry a lamp so far because if you carry it more than this many paces, it turns into work. And so you have all of these like arbitrary rules that get made up, and so you end up with these silly stories like they place a lamp every 50 paces or whatever the number of paces is, so that they can you know, put it down, pick it back up, and then keep going because that way they're avoiding work. And so if you add squats, apparently it's no longer work. <laughs> that's, that's the conclusion to take away. Squats aren't work, ask my trainer. Um, so. Now, the the Jewish tradition there of trying to take away the categories of necessity and mercy leads to those types of absurdities. Now, um, they sort of left room for the worship as work, but tried to say that it wasn't work or, or things like that, and you end up with, also with some of the work of the saints. So Jesus you find in other passages arguing for things like, look, the priests are doing a lot of work when they're doing the butchering of the sacrifices on the Sabbath. And so they're able to do that even though it's, you know, it's plainly uh, you know, work that is distinctive. And so he, he makes arguments from these types of things. You pull together all the times that Jesus talks about the Sabbath, you get a lot of information. But uh, the healed man doesn't quite deal with the issue uh, particularly well. He doesn't make the argument. He kind of just says, well, the guy who healed me, told me to take up my bed and walk. And so he essentially is arguing from the empirical sign of being healed to the authority to tell him to do something. Right? So we need to remember this. The law of God is the authority. Jesus accurately told this man that it was righteous for him to get up, walk, and carry his bed and to take it back to his house. And so the carrying of his bed back to his house was not a violation of the Sabbath law. Um, and the reason for that was that it was an ordinary, necessary work because he was already there. This was his property that was already there. And so grabbing it now and taking it back to put it away is the ordinary type of necessary care for property that you would see. Um, And that would be a thing that's appropriate, therefore, for the Sabbath. That's the idea, the basic idea there. But the man doesn't argue from that. He just says, the guy who healed me told me to do it. So we need to remember that empirical signs are not the authority when we have a prophet who does signs, you still need to test them. And there are two tests for prophets given to us in the word of God. Deuteronomy 13 says that what they teach has to be coherent with past revelation. So you test them for is what this guy is saying, is it line up with what was revealed previously? In Deuteronomy 18, if there are predictions that are made and they're not fulfilled, he's a false prophet, he didn't receive a word from the Lord. So those two things, the Deuteronomy 13 test, coherence, Deuteronomy 18 test, fulfillment. Okay, those are the two tests for a prophet. So you still have to test if a command from somebody is coherent with past revelation. So uh, John 5.14, we see, you know, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus affirms the law of God by telling the man to not sin. And remember, uh, this is not a de- Jesus wasn't denying the law when he was demanding this man to get up, walk, and carry his bed. Rather, uh, Romans, tw- Romans 3, verse 20, the second part of it, says, By the law is the knowledge of sin. Right? By the law is the knowledge of sin. You don't know what sin is without the law of God. That is a key verse to know. Okay? Romans 3, verse 20 by the law is the knowledge of sin verse 15 the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well and that leads into the um, the response that Jesus gives now to opposition because this is going to raise the opposition higher okay verse 16 for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so the man tells the Jews that Jesus is the one who healed him. The Jews seek to bring harm to Jesus, because they believe Jesus broke the Sabbath, and they don't understand the exceptions properly. To when work is permissible on the sabbath and then in verse 17 jesus explains that not all work on the sabbath is wrong because god instituted the sabbath and he put aside one kind of work creation for a different kind of work providence so this verse verse 17 john 5 17 is a very important verse to properly understand the sabbath And normally when I'm trying to help people to see the idea of the categories of work on the Sabbath, I will try to go to this verse. But a lot of the times people just don't understand how the verse relates. So it's a a thing that, it's neat to be preaching through the broader context because it's so obvious when you're reading the whole chapter and are going through it that Jesus is using the argument from God worked in creating for six days and then he rested from that work. And then he continued work of a different kind, providence. It's so obvious in that context that Jesus is making an argument that there's some kind of work that's acceptable on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath. But when you read the verse by itself, people typically don't get it. And even if you read the chapter and you don't understand Genesis well, if you haven't read Genesis Chapters 1 and 2, especially that bridge portion where the, you know, the beginning of chapter 2 where God institutes the Sabbath, you don't get it either. And so you have to be familiar with these texts. So, my Father has been working until now, and I have been working. That makes sense if you know that in Genesis 2 it says that God rested. Okay, so in Genesis 2, we had the end of creation. <coughs> Creation is finished after the sixth day. On the seventh day, God rests. That rest means that he stopped working. Right? That's the point of the word. Rest. But he didn't stop all working. He stopped the kind of working he was doing before. So that means on the Sabbath, he was doing some kind of working. And that's what Jesus says here. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. If you have in your mind the proposition, God rested from his work on the seventh day, this verse should be shocking. God rested from his work on the seventh day. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Those two things sound contradictory. They are a rhetorical paradox. And whenever you see in the Bible things that sound contradictory, here is the purpose. Every single time. Okay? Every time the Bible has a rhetorical paradox, it is meant to make you realize that there are two meanings of the word. So when God says, I rested and I didn't rest, you go, ah, these are in different senses And so, therefore, there are two meanings to this word. So that's what the Bible does to show us that we don't read the same word meaning the same thing every time. On the other side, there's a danger of people who are heretics, the sophists that want to come in and play word games. They will come in and they will give as many meanings as they want to words without any way of demonstrating it so that they can plug in any doctrine they want. So you need to avoid two dangers here. There are two pits on the side of the road. The one danger is a wooden reading that does not allow for multiple meanings of a term. And the other danger is a reading of text that makes it so that words are a wax nose that you can bend any way you want. And so what you do is you look through the scriptures to demonstrate different usages. And you will be able to find those different usages, the different ways that things are used, and to be able to show, simply from the texts themselves, how it's necessary to have multiple readings of a word, different senses of a word. The way you will do that is you will find, if this all means the same thing, it leads to a contradiction. And oftentimes you will find those in rhetorical paradoxes. So the rhetorical paradoxes are God's way of helping us to see that different words have uh, have multiple meanings. So God rested from his work on the seventh day in the sense that he stopped some kind of work. He stopped creation work. But at the same time, he was working then. Working on what? A different work. And what was that work? It was providence. It was governing the stuff he's made and preserving it. So we have creation and providence. So the Sabbath day is a day of rest. And what you hear in Roman Catholic and Anglican and Lutheran circles typically is you will hear that the Sabbath day or the Lord's day, they'll say, first, it's not a Christian Sabbath. And then secondly, it is a day of rest. And the word Sabbath means rest. That's what the, I don't get the, how can you have an objection to one and not the other? So it's a day of rest but it's not a Sabbath. And at the same time, that you are not supposed to spend the day worshiping so hard, because then it would be work. But instead, you can do recreation. So you go, okay, the day is a day of rest and not working, and therefore you can play sports. You can do whatever. You can relax. You can whatever. So they turn it into a day of idleness. So, It is a day of rest from our ordinary work and recreation in order to, in order to spend the day in the work of worship. It's holy. It's a holy day. Now, in the history of Puritanism, in England in particular, the monarchs who were the head of the Church of England, stealing a position, it's just the same sort of... Uh, wicked sin that the Pope committed. The Pope claiming to be the head of the church is the stealing a position from, uh, from Christ. And the King of England claiming to be the head of the church of England is wickedly stealing the position of Christ. Okay? So the, the King of England can no more be the head of the church than the Pope can be. And so the King of England claimed to be the head of the church of England and also tried to make it so that it was lawful and even required that people play sports after they went to church so the puritans rejected that there's literally a book of permitted and required sports called the book of sports okay book of common prayer and the book of sports were both put out by the church of england at the order of the king okay and so the puritans rejected this and opposed it and so they said no this is the sabbath and you're not to do that and so you find the Book of Common Prayer and the Book of Sports are implements of tyranny, and the Puritans opposed them, and these are things that led into the English Civil War, okay? So the, there's a great book called The Market Day of the Soul, and it's all the, Christian, the, the Puritan view of the Sabbath that goes through the history of the fight between the Anglican view and the Puritan view, and at the same time, there arose what were sort of precursors to the Seventh Day Adventist movement uh, that also came up during that time. So they weren't Seventh Day Adventist yet, but they were, there were people that were there were saying, that, you know, there's a seventh the Seventh Day in order Sabbath, and so they were basically advocating an Old Covenant Sabbath. There was the Church of England advocating for no Sabbath, but the Lord's Day is a day for worship sometimes and sports the rest, and then there was the Puritan view. Okay, so the Market Day of the Soul is a great book tracking the argumentation. It has a really great chart at the end of the book that lists out for you the comparison of the views. So I would encourage you, before you read the book, just open up to the chart at the end of the book. Look at the comparison of views, and then you can read the history. I think you'll find it very interesting. So, we see this idea of the Christian Sabbath, and the Christian Sabbath is for rest from ordinary work and recreation for picking up the work of worshiping God and the assembly of the saints, along with necessary things to keep things rolling in works of mercy that relieve people from their present distress. Now verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so there's the breaking the Sabbath argument against Jesus. And then they say the basis that he is claiming to to give teaching about the Sabbath is from his own authority as the Son of God and also the fact that he has received testimony from the Father. And so it's the authority of God, the Father himself. And so they say this is blasphemy. So now not only is he breaking the Sabbath according to them, but he's blaspheming. And so now the emphasis of the argument is going to shift to the relationship of Jesus with the Father, and there are two main doctrines that I want you to notice as we go through this text. One is the way it shows the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? the equality of the Father and the Son, and in their equality uh, the, uh, between the Father and the Son, the fact that still that Jesus takes orders from the Father, which reveals, it shows the economic trinity, how they function, which shows the covenant order where there is a difference of role by agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's the the Trinitarian doctrine and there's an implication that follows. Here's the second doctrine I want you to see in this text as we go through. The second doctrine is that Jesus himself finds himself to be carefully bound by the regulative principle. What do I mean by that? Remember, the regulative principle is the doctrine that we are not authorized to do anything unless God has given us a command. So we have to have a warrant from Scripture to do anything. Now, we we sometimes go, whoa, and we read that and we hear that very woodenly. Remember, the Scripture gives us broad principles oftentimes that give us huge swaths of authorization. For example, in the beginning, God gave the dominion mandate to man and told man to rule over the earth and over the animals and authorized us to eat vegetables and fruits and and, and things of that variety. By Genesis nine we we're authorized to eat animals. So those authorizations to do things are large and broad authorizations. But what we need to realize is that we need to look for authorization as opposed to having an assumption that we're allowed to do stuff unless it's forbidden. God owns everything, and when somebody else owns something, you don't get to take their property and do stuff with it unless they authorize it. So this is the regular principle, and Jesus applies it carefully to himself, and I want you to see that. So we're going to read through, and then I'll I'll do a little bit more uh, in-depth on that. (coughs) Okay, so look at verses 19 through 23. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Okay, so, so the Son can metaphysically, okay, ontologically, right, he, he can do things of himself. How do I know this? He's God. Okay, God has all power. He can do all the things he wants to do. So is Jesus saying, I'm not God? No, he's not. What he's saying is, the Son cannot lawfully, because of The agreement to subordinate himself to the Father and to take on humanity and to have his humanity under the law, he cannot do anything of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Okay, so here is the Son doing what the Father does. And what's being said here is not about the son in his divine nature. Jesus is saying, I, the God-man, here right now, talking to you in my human nature, am doing stuff to heal people and tell them to walk on the Sabbath, While picking up and carrying a load. Now the law in the Old Testament said anybody picking up sticks on the Sabbath gets executed. So how can I tell this guy, pick up your bed? Because God has authorized me to do it. God the Father has authorized me to do it. And He predestined and commanded that I heal this man and tell him to get up and carry his bed and walk. So that's what He's asserting. He's saying, You know why I did this, guys? Because God told me to do it. He's saying, The authority of God the Father is the basis for which I healed this man on the Sabbath and for which I commanded him to get up and carry his bed. So this is an argument for why it was justified for him as a human to give this order for this man to get up and walk and carry his bed. Whatever the father does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. Okay, so... This is a claim that the Father has shown everything he does to the Son. Now, in his divinity, Christ knows everything. He doesn't need to be shown anything. This is about Christ in his humanity. In his humanity, in his human nature, which is finite, he is given the full counsel of God. That's what this is a claim of. The full counsel of God is given to Christ in his human nature. Now, Christ in his human nature is finite, so he doesn't have an infinite amount of information there. What is he saying? He's saying all that which was meant to be revealed to man has been given to the Son in his humanity. And so the mind of Christ contains the fullness of the revelation that the Father gives to man. And in the scriptures, we're told, we have the mind of Christ. Which means the completed scriptures provide for us the fullness of what has been revealed to Christ. And therefore the fullness of what God has revealed to humanity. And so that's the point there. So this is an argument from the revelation of the Father as the basis for this being authorized. Notice Jesus' argument is not, well it wasn't forbidden. His argument is, this was shown to me and it is therefore authorized. It is shown to me, and is therefore authorized. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Okay, so there's the greatness of this healing, and there's the greatness of contradicting the human tradition of the Jews that said you can't carry stuff on the Sabbath under any conditions. Unless it's less than, like, 50 paces, in which case it wasn't really carrying, whatever. So the nonsense that's made up for that. But the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Okay, so... This guy was lame, and God healed him supernaturally so he could walk. What's greater than taking a lame man and causing him to be able to walk? Taking a dead man and making him able to walk. Now, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus, and he's also going to raise others, and he's also going to be raised himself. And interestingly, his resurrection is going to be the basis for the change of the Sabbath, right? So, Jesus is showing us there's going to be a greater miracle. And that greater miracle is going to be associated with a change of the Sabbath day. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, notice the four, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Okay, what's the four there for? Well, the previous verse says For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Okay. The Son gives life to whom he will means that the Son is the one who's judging who receives life. It's a judgment of, it's a judgment of Christ. That's been delegated to him by the Father. Now this work of giving life is not only done physically, it's also done spiritually. The giving of life spiritually is when God gives people faith in the giving of life physically when he resurrects them from the dead. And so Jesus is going to give people faith in this life through his vicar, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give people, and he's going to give people physical life at the resurrection, and then he will give the judgment. So there's that those two ways in which the judgment of Christ relates to the resurrection. And the resurrection that occurs in terms of a spiritual resurrection of the soul is a supernatural work and the rising of the dead for the day of judgment is a supernatural work he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him it is a statement that you need to understand that Jesus is authorized to properly show us how the law works and he is also authorized to make changes of ceremony he is also authorized to make judgments And if we don't honor the son in his judgments about people and in his judgments about the application of the law and in his authority about ceremony, then what we're going to find is that we have dishonored the father. So to make clear further what has been brought up here, what we've seen is a discussion of the regulative principle that we cannot do anything unless we're given warrant by God. We have no authorization to do anything unless we're given warrant by God. That's the regulative principle. We have to prove it by explicit statement or necessary inference. Necessary inference can include using approved examples or disapproved examples to know things that are good and things that are bad. So God gives us examples, and he'll say, this was blessed, this was good, whatever. Or say, this is a bad thing. This guy was punished. He received a curse. Those are ways of seeing that. Historically, the alternative that is put forward again by Lutheranism Anglicanism, and by Rome, is called the normative principle. The normative principle is whatever is not forbidden is allowed. It comes from an assumption of authorization, and it requires that you prove a thing is sin. It's called the normative principle. Now, these two principles, when you compare them, the normative principle is pretty obviously stupid pretty quickly. Okay? Here's why. In church, we are not forbidden from firing archery, Uh, at each other while it's on fire. There's no place to look. You'll search the scriptures in vain to find a prohibition on firing flaming arrows at each other in the public assembly to symbolize the light of the world or whatever. You know, this is like, I just literally just made this up and you can make up all sorts of stupid stuff over and over again and you can just invent it and go, well, is there a prohibition on this? Is there a prohibition on this? Is there a prohibition? No, there's not. There's not. The list of prohibitions would have to be infinite. Okay? So the normative principle that says unless a thing's forbidden, it's allowed is something that results in all sorts of ridiculous, stupid examples being able to be brought in that obviously be inappropriate in worship and in life would also create similar problems. So the normative principle, which says whatever is not forbidden is allowed, is very quickly abandoned in any sort of serious debate about it, especially when those debates are in front of other people who are not already on your side. So what people have invented are efforts to try to make up a middle ground between unless it's authorized it's forbidden versus whatever is not forbidden is allowed. But, but think about this for a second. The regulatory Principle and the Normative Principle are, are, are complements in the sense that if you say one side is you can only do what's authorized, okay, you're saying you can only do A. Okay. Now, that position, if you compare it to the, the, the normative principle, the normative principle says whatever is not forbidden is allowed. If you, somebody says whatever is not forbidden is allowed, then what you have is sort of the forbidding side. And if you look at scripture, the forbiddings are actually systematically arranged to be the opposite of the allowed, the commanded. Okay? So scripture commands stuff, that's category A. The stuff it forbids is actually non-A. Okay, so the scriptures will say, you must not murder, you must take lawful efforts to preserve life. You can find verses to prove both sides of that. So one is A, murder, the other one is non-A, you know, preserving life, and the preserving of life gives you the opposite category. You can find that with the whole law of God. And so the problem is, the normative principle, if you were to study properly, whatever's not forbidden is allowed, um, if you were to study the forbiddings properly in scripture, you would actually end up with the regulative principle. And so what you end up doing to have the normative principle not turn into the regulative principle is you end up just sort of making the forbiddings more narrow. You make the law more keepable. You make the law cover less stuff. And so... The law becomes very narrow in terms of what it forbids because you're trying to maximize your space of freedom to do whatever you want. And when that happens, it becomes that easily caricaturable thing. Well, the Bible doesn't forbid us from shooting flaming arrows at each other in church to symbolize the light of Christ. Right? It doesn't forbid us from throwing footballs to each other to symbolize our communion and having enjoyment of each other's presence. Like it you know, that's fine. We can add all those things into the public worship of God when you take the normative principle and read the law in a very narrow and confined way. So that, that principle is a hard one to defend because you either end up with the regulated principle because you're reading the forbiddings in a way that's proper and biblical, or you try to really restrain what's forbidden so you can do whatever you want, and it makes the law into a joke. So what you'll find a lot of people that call themselves reformed now who want to deny the regulative principle and they want to assert some principle and, and they don't have, there's not a well-coalesced name around it yet. But they'll typically say, well, we need to act in accordance with the pattern of Scripture. And the pattern of Scripture is not what the regulative principle would mean. And okay, the regulative principle would say, does the Bible explicitly tell us? Does the Bible have necessary inference where we could say this is a good thing? Does the Bible give us an approved example or a disapproved example, okay? Those would be how we would find the pattern of Scripture in the regulative principle. The pattern of Scripture view wants to make it so that you can do more than what you can find explicitly or by necessary inference. They want to say, it feels like it fits. This thing, you know, firing flaming arrows at each other in the church service, throwing footballs at each other in the church service, that doesn't fit. With the pattern of scripture. However, lighting an advent candle, doesn't that just like feel like it fits? Because there, the light advent candle, like Jesus is the light of the world it's coming into the world. And and the flaming arrow thing, that doesn't fit. The advent candle, that fits. does not you feel it? Like I mean, there were temples, there were, there were there were candles in the temple, or you know, so why not? So now all of a sudden this feeling of what fits the pattern as opposed to explicit statement, necessary inference. This looser thing. And who are the people that have the proper sensibilities to feel the pattern? Well, the priest class, the clergy, the, the officers, of course. Their sensibilities are the most finely tuned to the pattern of scripture. They have a sixth sense called finding the pattern of scripture sense. And you have to trust them, okay? So, This is the kind of thing, I mean, all of these unclear principles, when people want to take things out and make it into something that's a little bit more vague, let me tell you what you should immediately scream, priestcraft. Every time somebody wants to give you some unclear way of determining what is right and what is wrong, it is so some special leader can have freedom to do what he wants. So, this pattern principle, it either just means the regulated principle, explicit statement, necessary inference, or it means what the leader wants. Sometimes you'll have a multiple source principle. Wesleyans, for example, Methodists often will appeal to the idea that there are other sources, and they'll start to appeal to a tradition or whatever else. Uh, Rome, obviously, has a multiple source principle, the Eastern Orthodox have that. Um, that's just rejecting sola scriptura. I mean, it's, just, it's either sole scripture or it's not. Is scripture alone the authority or not? So we get back to, I guess we're stuck with, the regulative principle. Otherwise, scripture is not the thing that's actually sufficient for doctrine in life. So, what we have looked through so far, we've seen... Jesus, again, emphasizing the Christian Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath, the Old Covenant, actually. He's actually dealing with the Old Covenant Sabbath. He shows us the regulative principle applies to himself in all of life. And he's showing how the Sabbath itself is something that he was applying the regulative principle to, based upon what the Father had revealed. He's appealing to the Father. He's defending his equality with the Father, so we have the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, next time, what we're going to see at the end of John 5 is that he makes an argument from four witnesses uh, in addition to himself to show the legal validity. And four is overkill, his legal overkill. In the law of Moses, what do you need? You need two witnesses. Okay, you Three witnesses if you're, if you're really trying to you know, pile it on. So Jesus is going to bring four witnesses and it's sort of like this is the overflow of the cup of testimony to defend his position. So we'll take a look at that next time. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members? and those with speaking rights.